What's going on, everybody, and welcome inside to yet another edition of the Open Run Podcast presented to you by none other than more media. My name is Gabriel Wilkins, and I'm joined yet once again with my fellow friend, my partner in crime in the backcourt, Josh Hicks. How you doing, bro? I know you was out of town, just got back. What's going on with you? Trying to recoup still. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to recoup still, but outside of that, man, I'm doing well. Can't complain. I feel you on that, bro. Definitely want to give a shout out to WNBA star Brittany Griner, who was recently released from prison out in Moscow, Russia last week, and is finally back on home soil after serving nearly 10 months of jail time due to being detained by Russian government officials on smuggling charges in the country. Griner was part of a one-for-one prisoner swap between the U.S. and Russian government. Also want to give some hoop shout outs to some of the college basketball squads out here in the land, number 18, Illinois, coming back late to take down number two ranked Texas and handing them their first loss of the year in an upset overtime win last week at MSG out at the Jimmy V Classic in New York City. This marks the second ranked opponent that the Fighting Illini have taken down during the early days of college season after knocking off UCLA. At the main event last month out in Vegas prior to Thanksgiving, Matthew Mayer, recorded a season-high 21 points and tied his career-high mark from beyond the arc, knocking down five triples in the contest, while the former Lincoln Park standout Terrence Shannon Jr. scored 12 out of his 16 points in OT to notch his eighth double-digit scoring performance of the year and route to the 85-78 to win with another special shout-out on the collegiate ranks going to former local Morgan Park star, and McDonald's All-American guard, Amari Burnett, who helped number eight Alabama take down number one ranked Houston this past weekend in a back-and-forth affair out in the Space City as the Crimson Tide captured a 71-65 to win against the national semifinalists from just two years ago. And I want to give a shout-out to the NBA guys, man, for especially All-Stars, rather, who have reached some big-time milestones as of late. Shout out to Giannis Antetokounmpo of the Milwaukee Bucks for reaching a 15,000-point plateau in his career during this past weekend against the Rockets out in Houston, becoming the first player ever in Milwaukee history to score over 15,000 points for the franchise as a six-time All-Star and NBA champ. Took just 678 regular season games to accomplish the feat. Cavs All-Star center Jerry Allen for hauling down his 1,000 offensive rebound and 200 career steal on the way to a 21.11 rebound night in Cleveland's 110-102 win against the Oklahoma City Thunder at home last Saturday. And Magic rookie forward Paulo Bancaro, who recently joined Pelicans forward and fellow Duke alum Zion Williamson and Michael Jordan is the only players ever to score at least 20 points or more in 15 of their first 20 games as last year's number one overall pick constructed a 23.6 rebound and four assist night in Orlando's 113-109 win against the Raptors at the Amway Center last Friday in Orange County. Definitely want to send the rest of power out to Paul Silas, former NBA All-Star power forward and veteran NBA coach who passed away this past weekend at the age of 79. Prayers and thoughts go to his son, Current Rockets head coach Steven Silas, as well as the rest of his family and friends. Gotta ask you though, getting right into it after getting all that out the way, Josh. 
what performances or players stood out to you or caught your eyes across the basketball landscape as of late? You did cross any level over these last couple of days. I'm gonna give um two uh two situations. One um is Clay Thompson actually, um, how he's emerged over these past 10, 10 to 12 games, kind of looking like himself a little bit. And uh, that's what the Warriors needed to help themselves get back into somewhat of a rhythm. And, um, you know, the Warriors, they're still terrible on the road. They only won two games on the road. Defense is still horrible on the road. There's a lot still that needs to be fixed with the Warriors, but they're not winning another championship or going anywhere in the playoffs without uh, without a somewhat healthy and strong uh, Clay Thompson on both ends of the floor. And, he's, and it seems like the, his last 10 to 12 games, he's really picked it up. So um, Clay Thompson is someone that definitely caught my eye. But another one is really two young high school guys and uh, okay. Bernie James and uh, Tyon Anthony. I'm glad um, you shouted them out. Yeah, they did face definitely. off against one another. Yeah, most definitely. Like they said it's been 20 years since LeBron and Carmelo Anthony played against each other in high school. Now they got to. Now you got to see what the next generation looks like in Bronny James, as well as Bryce James being on the same team as uh, Bronny going up against uh, Kion Anthony. Um, Bronny looks good, man. Bronny looks good, and um, they and, and I, I do believe Bryce is eventually going to be the better player as long as he continues to um, improve. I do too. But Bronny, but Bronny, man, that dude—he's he, looking. He's he has something. He has that. He has that it factor with him when it comes to his skill set now. And um, it's it's very scary to watch. Once he finally learned, he's in that, in that stage now where he's learning to put it all together. And that's something that's very, very scary to see. So, but the historical context of that, seeing Le, uh, LeBron, Carmelo at the games together, um, and as well as the, the Bryant family. Uh, Vanessa Bryant was there. Um, the daughter, and then you know the daughter with their daughter was there. You know Kim Kardashian and all those and all those. Yeah, I saw that. It was a Hollywood affair. Uh, yeah, game man. But it the the real historical context of those two of of the you know the next generation of basketball from two legends like Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James that really means something. Uh, that really means something. So to be able to witness that and to watch that that was special. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, Sierra King ended up taking that game against Christ the King. I think Bronny had like 12, six and four line. Was real, real rounded performance, you know, real yeah. the floor general. A guy that, you know, he's not going to necessarily wow you all the time, even though he does with his athleticism. He's a he's a team-oriented player. He could do a little bit of everything. I really like his game. I think it'll translate no matter whether or not, you know, he evolves into a star player or a role player. He kind of remind me of Lonzo a little bit. Like, you know, mm-hmm. just the tone setter and the pace setter. And I like that about his game. He's very mature for his age. And you don't see too many young high school players willing to be as unselfish as he is, you know, giving up his body for charges and stuff like that. Taking an open shot. He don't really force nothing. You can tell he's the son of approaches by the way he plays the game. But two players stood out for me. I'm going to keep it league pace. And it was really a pair of rookies. Andrew Nimhart. From the Indiana Pacers, mm-hmm. guys we know who hit a big-time buzzer beater to knock off the Lakers a couple weeks ago. We followed that up with a 31-point and 13-assist night on 13 for 21 shooting from the floor while knocking down five out of seven trades on his 30-10 and 10 evening to finish with a plus 16 in the Pacers' 112-104 to 104 win against the 
defending champion Golden State Warriors last week. That win came into Chase Center, a place as we know, and as you alluded to, Josh, speaking on Clay Thompson and the Warriors, they've been pretty much unbeatable there all year. And for a rookie to come in there and show out the way that he did, making plays in the pick and roll game, knocking down shots with confidence, stepping up in the absence of some starters who were missing. I have to give him credit for that. This is a guy who's a second round pick out of Gonzaga. And a lot of people raised their eyebrows when they saw the Pacers grant him the highest rookie contract ever for a second round draft pick. Mm -hmm. And he showed why, you know, with the way he performed this past Monday night last week. And Jabari Smith Jr., man, who currently leads all rookies in rebounding and then started to find his stride, shooting the three-point shot as he also leads rookies and three-pointers made. He dropped 23 points on 9 and 13 shooting from the floor and a loss to the Spurs. However, he's played a big spark in helping the Rockets capture three straight wins on their home floor against the likes of the Sixers and the Bucks, where he helped Houston garner some big-time stops late when asked to guard Giannis in the clutch minutes to cap off last weekend's victory. And even though in that game he only had about like four points and was struggling to find his rhythm offensively, he held Giannis, I believe, to under 20 points in about 16 shots. So that just goes to show that he can impact the game on all levels. And he's a guy that has gotten a lot of flack because he started rather sluggish out the gate and people were questioning whether or not if he could be the lead guy but he may not have to be the lead guy in Houston with the way that Jalen Green has emerged as late mm -hmm. onto the scene, Kevin Porter Jr. He could just be that solid 3 and D option that they need on the wing. And if and anything else that he gives them is an additional bonus, is Houston looks like a team that sooner rather than later, once they continue to accumulate talent and play those young guys, can really become a major player down the road in the Western Conference once again as they seek to find new life post-James Harden era. So I, I really like what I'm seeing from the Rockets and especially Jabari Smith Jr. And last but not least, you know, 21, can you do something for me? Yes, you can. You know, he 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 put up 53 points and 12 rebounds in a win against the Charlotte Hornets. It's like every second Sunday of the month, if the, if the Philadelphia 76ers are playing, you got to be on 50-ball watch alert. Joel <laughs> the Baptist, man, you know, because he coming with it. Just a month ago, he had a 59-point game on the second Sunday of November in a win against the, the Utah Jazz. It's like every time that the Sixers are at home and it's the second Sunday of the month, Joel just, you know, I don't know if he getting a good word or what, but he he, he coming with it on the floor. <laughs> i tell you that much. He coming with it on the floor, and, and that's something that you love to see. He's now leading the league and scoring, averaging damn near 34 points a game. Yeah, man, uh, I'm glad you mentioned Joel Embiid because you you talking about he getting the word, he getting more than just the word, he getting the word and a and a good Sunday afternoon dinner after that, man. All right, <laughs> but, but that dude, yeah, that dude is balling. That dude, that dude, that dude, like you said, it's always something about the second Sunday in the month where the dude's gonna ball out like whether he does, and you know, but he's also I think Philadelphia's also learning too that even with you know the absences of Tyrese Maxey and at times James Harden, like you know. Team's not going anywhere without Joel Embiid leading the front. And he has to be able to be that aggressive every game for, to even give the Sixers really a chance. So, yeah, if, it's better if he can do that every game. <laughs> but at this present moment, you know, you got to give the uh, you got to give the credit where it's due. And, you know, every, we might have to dedicate every uh, every second Sunday of every month, 
Joel Embiid day or something because we, he's been dropping, like you said, he's been dropping 50 bombs like crazy. We might just give him that day and just call it Joel Embiid day. Yeah, you you got to at this point. Or you definitely got to highlight it if you listening in and you work for NBA League Pass because every second Sunday, man, it's, it's been a box office show. And you don't see that too often. And I believe that Joel Embiid is only the third Philadelphia 76er in the history of the franchise to record multiple 50-point games in a single season, joining the late great center, Wilt Chamberlain, and Hall of Famer, Allen Iverson, is the only guys in franchise history to ever accomplish the feat. So that's, that's impressive company. That's elite company. And to be one of only three guys to do that, that says a lot about how great Joel Embiid has been as of late for a Sixers team that has needed him to be everything and some and live up to that bill. But moving along, got to ask you, what were your thoughts on Celtics and Warriors as we saw that finals rematch take place this past Saturday night, as well as Bulls-Hawks in a game that had a lot of ups and downs, man, and came down to the wire one moment, you thinking the Bulls out of it, Bulls get back in it, take the lead off some bonehead plays from the Atlanta Hawks. And then A.J. Griffin, man, made a circus shot to win the game because the Bulls didn't have nobody defending the rim. Man, it's – I'll start with the Celtics-Warriors game first. Celtics-Warriors game, it honestly showed that, you know, there's levels to this. Like, <laughs> that's pretty much what they – that's pretty much what it showed. Granted, Boston has taken that next step to the they taken that next level of play, but it's something about those champions. It's something about being playing against the champions, and you know you're playing against you know where they rise to the occasion. The Warriors only lost I think one one game on at, at home, and yeah, they, just two this whole season. Yeah, two this whole season. So you know the Warriors are a different beast than they are on the road. And for them to be playing the way they did at home, and they're playing against a team that they won a championship against, you know, you knew you knew they was gonna bring the heat, and they definitely did. Um, but and and it just showed that even though Boston has taken that next level, they still got some more growing to do, because when you're playing against the best of the best like that, you know, no matter how good, at the end of the day, you got to win still. And Boston has struggled in beating the Warriors, and you know. Obviously, granted, like I said, this was the home game for them, so you knew the Warriors were going to play well, and the Warriors are not good on the road, so I'm looking forward to see what the Warriors going to, how the Warriors going to play when they play Boston again in Boston. Yeah. Um, but this game just showed that you know Warriors are champions for a reason, and and even though you know they may not be where we want them to be or where they want where they even want to be right now. They still got talent enough to put the shine and shine in the brightest moments when necessary, and that's what they did for that game. So that's what stood out to me, you know, watching, uh, especially uh, watching the highlights and stuff from that game. But the Bulls, Hawks, man, look, I, I was, I, I was like, there's no the the Bulls problems continue to get worse. They just continue to get worse, and I'm. <laughs> And and this and, and and this specific game, outside of this is really a coach's fault. 
I think in a lot of cases, this is Billy's fault because Billy has to make sure that his that his players are attentive enough to execute every game. And boneheaded plays like the like the Griffin play, things of that sort. There's no reason why he should have gotten the ball that low. Like it's that that's a that's that's schematically wrong how you defend a play like that. And and aside from and even aside from that, I'm also gonna, I'm I'm gonna go there too. These stars, Zach Levine, you turning the ball over way too much, bro. Way too many turnovers. Way too many plays where the Bulls just seem careless. Yeah. And and that has to be tightened up. That starts with the that starts with your on that from that end of the deal. That starts with your players. That starts with your leader. If Zach Levine is supposed to be the leader, he should not be having that high of a turnover rate ratio, especially when it's offensive game is it combating with the turnovers. Like that's where it's just so many, it's just so like I said, so many things that there's so many factors that just keep getting worse and worse. And now health is playing an issue because you got players getting hurt all the time. You know, Io's been hurt, uh Alice Caruso has been hurt. Yeah. You know, so they, so players are, you know, it's like a, a small avalanche of a domino effect turning into an avalanche slowly but surely for the Bulls that they can't get their ass together. And that's on all ends, not just on the players, but it's also on the coaching staff as well. And the Hawks game really showed that. Still slow start issues, still not uh, still having defensive issues, still having to climb their way back from big leads and deficits, and being and not, and, and problems with sealing the deal, not being as not not playing well in clutch moments and clutch minutes of game of games, and all that is the recipe for the disaster. And unfortunately for the Bulls, the disaster continues. Something it's, we we talked about last week. Something has to be done. Clearly, something has to be done now because this is a continued effect that's turning into an avalanche that the Bulls really don't want to get themselves into. Especially when we had high expectations of them going past the first round this year, and they're sitting at the 11th seed in the Eastern Conference, barely even giving themselves a chance to play in the playing tournament. That's not a good look. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And then you bring up Zach. It's funny, I was just talking with one of my guys about this prior to this recording about how there have been far too many times where Zach Levine in critical minutes and clutch minutes, whatever you want to call them, is taking the worst shots at the most critical junctures. Mm -hmm. How many times are we going to see Zach Levine take contested fadeaway three-point step back shots when all night long no one can stop you when you get your first step off and blow to the cup mm -hmm. like i mean they, they can't can't nobody stop you get to the cup keep doing what's been working don't go away from it and we saw that last year in in the meltdown late in game one against the milwaukee bucks in the first round of last year's playoffs and we're continuously seeing that over and over again. And Zach has to find a way to show that he's willing to take that next step, especially as a max player. And I don't like to bring players' contracts in because I know he worked to get that bread. I don't care whether you like his style of play or not. He's worked to get that, that bread. But at the same time, that's why so many people question. Yeah. Because of your, of your 
your poor shot selection late in games. It has to be better. It has to be much more efficient. And when I look at this Bulls team, like Stacey King always said, you got to know your personnel. Yep. And most importantly, like we've been talking about the last several weeks since doing Open Run and unveiling this podcast to everybody, which is available on all podcasts and platforms, by the way, as we said in since the since the jump, you 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 got to know your personnel, man. You, you just got to know your personnel, and you got to talk and communicate on the defensive end, and stay attuned to what's going on, and staying connected. And this team continuously fails to do that over and over again. And this is the reason why they're among the bottom half of the Eastern Conference, still fighting and scratching to get into that play-in tournament range at this point. So we'll we'll, we'll see what, what, what goes on with that. As far as the Celtics and the Warriors, like you said, the Warriors have still proven that they're the team to be beaten. And even though Boston has gotten off to a hell of a start, guys have to look themselves in the mirror over there and ask themselves, hey, how can we bounce back from this? How can we respond? It most importantly starts with guys being more aggressive. I thought there were times where J- Jason Tatum settled for too many shots. You know, we talked about Zach Levine doing that in the loss to Atlanta. He did that a lot in Golden State this past weekend. Settling for the three ball, wasn't really finishing in an efficient clip when he did drive to the lane or kicking it out when he was facing a double team, trying to force too much. He has to find a way to pick and choose his balance. And the Celtics have to stop when it comes to running these drop coverages on the greatest shooter in all of the land, known as Stephen Curry. We, we just can't do that. We, we can't do that. that. That's a sin that can't continuously be committed time and time again. That's why he torched you in game six on the way to getting the Larry O.P. for Golden State, their fourth one in eight years last season. If that continuously keeps on happening in these matchups, you're done. You're right. done. You, you just can't go. You can't drop back in the coverage. You got to have a big man stay up on his grill. I saw Grant Williams getting into it with Marcus Smart about that when they had a defensive miscommunication. And he was literally telling Marcus, hey, man, you got to come up. You got to come up. You cannot continuously drop back on this guy. And it goes to show the importance of knowing your personnel to me, both of these games, because that could be the difference between whether or not you in the playoffs in the Bulls case or in the Celtics case, you find a way to get over the hump against a team that sent you home for a cold summer just several months ago. But I want to move on to talk about a new chair from the town in the Western Conference, and that's the New Orleans Pelicans, man. Despite currently playing without their starting all-star forward, Brandon Ingram due to a toe injury and Herb Jones due to an ankle injury over the last several games, New Orleans is currently riding hot with a league-best seven-game winning streak into Utah as we're recording this episode at the beginning of the week, all the while climbing up the first place in the West standings after capturing back-to-back wins at home versus the Phoenix Suns, Detroit Pistons, Denver Nuggets, San Antonio Spurs, Toronto Raptors, and Oklahoma City Thunder, as the Pels have not dropped a contest dating all the way back to Black Friday against the Grizzlies, in Memphis, Zion Williamson, he's currently averaging 39 and 5.3 assists per game and shooting 66.9% from the floor to be exact over the course of the Pelican seven-game win streak. 
Pels are currently the only team in the NBA to rank in the top five on both ends of the floor entering week nine of the 22-23 season. Is New Orleans currently ranks fifth in offensive efficiency and third in defensive efficiency, in addition to being the only team in the league without a loss when taking a lead into the fourth quarter is their 15-0 when doing that as of this recording as well. They got the Utah Jazz on the dock twice this week. Cap off the week going up against Phoenix this Saturday evening. Entering the week, Josh, Zion Williamson's MVP odds went down from 50 to 1 to 20 to 1 on Caesars Sportsbook following back-to-back 35-point performances against the Phoenix Suns as the All-Star currently stands with the six shortest odds to take home the league's highest individual honor come season's end. Do you believe that Zion's prepared to lead New Orleans to the promised land in 2023? Me personally, I think he is based off what I've been seeing. I I, I, I just, I, I see a team that's benefiting from past experiences. This was a team that, Last year had to fight their way back from a 1-12 hole to get the ninth seed in the West, beat San Antonio to advance to another play-in round for the eighth seed and knock off the Clippers on the road to get it. That final spot in the playoffs and challenged a 64-win Phoenix Suns team and took them all the way to six games in round one. I just see a team that's building off of it, bro. What's your thoughts? And I add to it. Yeah, yeah, he definitely can. Um, if you if you know you remember from the very first episode when we talked when we did our preseason uh pickings, I said Zion's my MVP pick. Yeah. Zion, Zion and he's and you can see why. He's, he's he's playing at such a rate. And I think this year his leadership, his leadership really helped improve. Because of from from his past experience, you talk about his, you talk about experiences from the Pelican side of things and what they and the role they took to get to where they are now. Zion, look at Zion Williams's role, coming from Duke, having to pay, you know, having foot and you know foot injuries and knee injuries and things of that sort, having surgeries, setbacks, having even missing a whole season. You know, it's like he's having he's had a lot of ups and downs himself, and but I think that prepared him for where he's at right now, because now he's not just playing basketball at such a high elite level, but he has his swagger back. He's leading the team. And as he's leading his team and, and, and the team is following his lead. And the, and the best part about it is the veterans are following his lead as well. CJ McCollum has stepped up huge it's, uh, to go along with Zion Williamson, especially in the absence of Brandon Ingram. And the, and he got the rest of the riders around him. So I think if, I think yeah he definitely can do it. I also think a lot of the success too has to deal with Willie Green, the head coach of the Pelicans. Willie Green has these guys playing at such a at such a way, not just offensively but defensively, and 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 they're playing so strong together on both ends of the floor. It, it's it's coming all together along from and that that starts with your head coach along with your leader. So I I believe that the Pelicans are in a prime position to take things to the next to take things to the next level from a playoff perspective as they currently sit number one in the Western Conference. At the same time though, they only go as far as where Zion can take them. 
And Zion is showing that as long as he stays healthy and continues to play every game, every game, Pelicans are going to be have a far better chance of going even further than where they had ever gone before. And Zion is the person to do that. I definitely believe Zion is ready to take on the mantle and take him farther than Anthony Davis ever could when he was with the New Orleans Pelicans. You could even add Chris Paul to that as well. Yeah. No disrespect. You know, as much as he helped basketball stick in that state of Louisiana, which we all know is football country, LSU all day long, you know, go Tigers. You, you see it everywhere you go. I have family in Louisiana, so I'm I'm very hip to the, the 504 and what's going on there. But I'm with you, man. I, I believe that Zion Williamson, if healthy, he can indeed lead this team to the NBA Finals. And what I like about his game, man, he's not forcing anything. He knows how to adapt. He knows how to adjust. He did a great job on Sunday in that second game of the back-to-back -back home set that they had with the Phoenix Suns, when Phoenix would come up quicker on a double team, they was always sending two bodies as soon as he caught the ball his way. Mm -hmm. yep. He found a way to, to, to get adjusted and say, you know what? I'm going to play bully ball on the block. I'm not just going to catch it on the wing. And when I get it, I'm going to attack quickly. I'm not going to make too many subtle crazy movements or whatever, but I'm going to attack quickly and I'm going to get mine. And they tried to use every type of thing that they could to counter him with, whether it was with size or speed. If you got the size and you slew footed, he just going to drive right past you. If you got the speed, well, he just going to put it in your chest like Derrick Henry and say, hey, come <laughs> stop it's pretty much like trying to stop Derrick Henry at this point. Like, even when you guess well and right on Zion's drives and you take a charge like Torrey Craig did, who I thought did an exceptional job of trying to defend him through those two games, you're going to pay a price for it. Right. You're going to pay a price for it, man, straight up. And the thing that I was impressed with the most, too, in those two games is, is when you have Phoenix at times sagging back in the paint to try and take the driving lanes away from him. He was like, you know what? I'm going to knock down this three-point shot with confidence. Mm -hmm. If I'm not mistaken, he shot two of three from beyond the heart in that overtime win against Phoenix on Sunday afternoon. And had that place rocking. Had that place rocking. Showing love to currency, you know, after the game, yeah. giving him his jersey. And you know what is really, really frightening? about this Pelicans team, you talk about C.J. McCollum, whose leadership has been amazing. Don't get me wrong. But he's shooting a career low, 32% from beyond the three-point line, okay? But in spite of that, he got guys stepping up and filling voids every single night. And all I can help but but wonder is what is this squad gonna do when they get healthy? Like Herb Jones, I got the numbers here. Herb Jones and Brandon Ingram have missed a combined 20 games. However, they are still sitting only behind the Celtics in net rating, beating opponents by 6.9 points per 100 possessions without their best wing defender in Jones, who, as we know, garnered all defensive team votes in his first year season ago, fresh out of Alabama. Williamson and C.J. McCollum have combined to miss nine games 
as well. And yet, even in spite of McCollum's struggles, as I said, who's been shooting 32% from downtown, the depth that this team has, man, is proven to be more than enough to help them win, no matter who's on the floor or who the opponent is that takes the floor besides them under Willie Green, man. Like, I'm looking at Trey Murphy the third right now. He stepped into the starting lineup in the absence of Ingram and Jones and is on the verge of a 50-40-90 season, man. And he's not just hitting catch-and-shoot looks that he generates off of the gravity that Zion helps to generate in the double team that Jonas Valanciunas commands on the low post, but he's taking advantage of these aggressive defensive closeouts that come his way from his opponents due to his ability to shoot and utilizing that threat and ball fakes to just blow past them and route to either easy layups or primetime slam in the lane for two points on top of moving without the ball and also slipping inside the corral, loose rebounds and route to either scoring or setting up his fellow teammates. People forget this man had a game, bro, where he didn't miss a single shot. He went eight for eight from the floor shot, four four from three on the way to a 22-point night to go alongside a five rebounds and a two-point win against Dallas on TNT. And they didn't have Zion or Brandon Ingram for, the, for that game, specifically. Like, they, they getting it done even when C.J. Truck, who had a big-time out late in clutch minutes and in overtime in that win against Phoenix in their previous out, as we record this. So I, I, I'm looking at this roster, and, and, and I ain't even mentioned Larry Nance, who's been huge on mm -hmm. the defensive end, Najee Marshall. Great things always happen with Najee Marshall in the game. This dude has had back-to-back -back games with double figures as of late, making the presence as an all-ball cutter next to Zion and, and CJ, knocking down open threes that are generated off the double teams when these teams want to collapse inside to take away the driving lane from Zion, if not CJ. I, I'm impressed. And Grand Theft Alvarado, man, man. He, he he doing it right now, man. He's lost 38 points and 20 and 38 points and 20 points, excuse me, in separate outs in the last week and a half alone. I mean, I, I I'm really liking this team and what I see right now. They 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 are connected. Dyson Daniels, the rookie, has even stepped up. Mm -hmm. You know, this dude was was defending Chris Paul like a veteran the other day, and and is one of the most disciplined defenders that I've ever seen. As a rookie. And I got to give credit to David Griffin, man. I had a lot of questions about the New Orleans Pelicans when they let Lonzo Ball walk. I really did. But for him to hit on these draft picks and Trajan Langdon and Swing Cash and his front office in New Orleans, I have to tip my cap to him. Because they're doing it big, as they as they like to say down there. They're doing it big, and I, and I think they're only just getting started. And I do believe Zion can lead this team to the promised land. Oh yeah, I completely agree. You know, I'm 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 just glad that Zion is finally getting the MVP MVP talk conversation that he deserves. Yes, granted, right now Jason Tatum is leading the way with the way uh, he's playing on top of helping Boston be the number one team in the Eastern Conference and NBA. But come on now, Zion Zion's making noise and taking a Pelicans team that no one expected to the top of the West. That's he 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 deserves to be in that conversation as well. And we talked and when you and we talked about how you know the Pelicans are and their defensive rating and how well they're playing defensively, they're taking care of the ball too. Yeah. They're taking care of the ball. They're, they're currently sitting in the top four in assist to turnover ratio. And, and so it's like you and, 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 and so when you talk about no lines of ball, let's be honest, they really don't have a point guard. There's really no point guard in New Orleans right now. 
It's not. And yet, they have, they're, yet, they're, yet they're not only creating opportunities for others, but they're also limiting the wasted opportunities on the same end. That is something that stands out. And it shows the discipline, like you said, of Willie Green. Put, making sure that his players are not only protecting the ball, but also using the ball at the right times to create opportunities for others in situations where you don't have your best players every night. That's a that's that's the difference of the growth and maturity that young teams like the Pelicans need to get to that next level. And for Zion Williamson to be contributing in that in a big way on top of that, that's that's like I said, they only getting started over there. They're just getting started. And if they continue on this path, once everyone is healthy, once CJ McCollum does start to find his groove, that's going to be something scary for any team to watch. That to have. They're already scary now, but wait till yeah. playoff season. And we already know what playoffs is like down in, in, in New Orleans, man. It's a whole other vibe. You, so that so Smoothie King Center, Smoothie King Arena is going to be something special to be in if you are if you are a big New Orleans a basketball fan in general, but for sure a New Orleans Pelicans fan. Yeah, that's something that's something to see and a lot something that a lot of teams do not want to get themselves involved with. I agree. And I mean the fans and the crowd, they showed up and showed out these last two games over the weekend against Phoenix. They had sellout crowds, bro. And you you could feel the energy just watching from the crib on league as at least I could personally. It, it's it's rocking down there. And I'm glad to see Zion showing just how much of a box office star he truly is when healthy. This dude is averaging over 25 points on 60% shooting from the field. You want to know the last guy and the only guy in the history of the NBA to ever do that prior to Zion Williamson? Hall of Fame big man, Kevin McHale. And guess mm. what? Zion's on his way to doing it twice in the last three years. That's just something to think about. Just something to think about for those that doubt it. Those who wanted to, you know, question whether or not he would live up to the bill. The only thing I've ever questioned is his health and can his body hold up? Mm-hmm. If his body continues to hold up, I think we looking at a guy who over the next couple of weeks can elevate up into the top three of the MVP conversation, man, and and he's he's well on his way because what of what he said in that post in, in the press conference game after he did that that slam dunk to end the game. Yeah, and pissed <laughs> the Phoenix Suns off. You know, he was asked about that, and he said, it's, and he admitted it's a little out of character of him, but he said that's the same player, the same team that took my teammates home. Right. I was in the locker room. I saw that. I didn't get that, and the worst part about it, I couldn't even play. Yeah, it's a little bit of revenge. So it was a little bit of a revenge tour for him. That type of aggression, that type of leadership, that type of mentality, to com- to combine with that skill set, I-, I slam it home too. Do it. I slam it too. Too. Oh, I had no, I had no issues with that at all. And you know, Chris Paul. As much as I respect Chris Paul, got nothing but love for him. If you didn't want that to happen, then. Why you why you take a layup? The game was already decided. The game was already decided. Once you took that layup, you you could have dribbled the clock out, called it a day at the office. See y'all next day. Plain, plain and simple. That's that's all you had to do. But one thing I do want to give Zion kudos on too 
is that he's actually improved on a defensive end. He's been more engaged. He's been more active playing the passing lanes, which has led to a lot of these slams and, and jams that you've been seeing as of late from him out on the open floor. And for a guy who was asleep at the wheel early in the year, getting beat by Kelly Olenek on backdoor cuts and not really keeping his head on the swivel defensively, he he's taking an active role in it. You can tell because he even asked the, the people in the press conferences and the media members out there in the Big Easy hey, how would you grade yep. my defense tonight? Yeah, he's he, he checking for what's being said quietly, but I, I like the way he's handling his business, man. I, I really do. And he's also rebounding the ball at a at a solid clip for someone whose rebounding numbers were down a little bit. And I've heard people complain about it, but he's locked in right now. And if he can continue to carry this momentum into the new year, especially if shots fall for this Pelicans team, which has struggled from behind the three-point line as of late, gonna be scary. Gonna be real scary. I'll know. But I want to move along from the big easy out to the place that has become known as Grind City, thanks to a franchise that is playing not only their best stretch of defense this season, but sitting only a half a game behind the Pelicans for the top seed in the West and that is the Memphis Grizzlies, who in spite of currently being without the services of sharpshooting guard Desmond Bain due to a grade two sprain in his right toe over the last month, and forward Jaron Jackson Jr. at the onset of the year, continue to not miss a beat in the home of the Blues, as the Grizz have secured wins in their last six straight outings to open up the month of December in grand fashion, allowing just 100 points per 100 possessions led by last season's league leader in paint points per game and guard John Morant and big man Jaron Jackson Jr., whose return has made opponents not only think twice before driving inside the lane, but also significantly altering the shooting percentages within the paint as well. Jackson, who has recorded at least four or more swats in four out of his last five games, has caused foes of the Grizzlies to shoot less than 50% in the paint when he is on the floor compared to over 55% when he is not as Memphis has managed to outscore their opponents by an average of 24 points in the paint over the course of their win streak entering week nine of the season. Memphis currently sits in both the top 10 in offensive and defensive rating as of this recording. This is a team that has yet to play a game all year long without John Morant, Desmond Bain, and Jared Jackson Jr. all on the floor together. And yet they still only a half a game behind the Pelicans in the West. How legit is Memphis as a title contender, man? Well, I love Memphis, not just because of Bill, just not just because of Bill Street. Um, I actually got the chance to see Ja in person. Yeah, I saw that. Watching Ja, in like? man, watching Ja in person was something special to see. And it's and what what makes it so special is the relationship that he has with the city. The city, he has become 
what Derrick Rose in, the, in his own way has meant for us in Chicago. He has that city's pulse. And how can you blame him? That dude is electrifying. And his energy on both ends of the floor is contagious. So to be and, and and it goes around the whole team. He is that he brings that dynamic of the team, that chip on their shoulder. He's in front of that movement, and he should. And and in that game, yes, they're granted they're playing the Pistons. Who, by the way, I do believe in a couple of years, once Kay Cunningham gets fully healthy and they continue to move those players around, they're going to be scary to watch on the east and in the in the in the Midwest too. Detroit's no joke, but um, but Memphis overall. The heartbeat and soul of that team is on their defense and how it goes into transition play. And the one person that you do not want to see be on be, be dealing with that with is John Moran. <laughs> That's one person you don't want to deal with when it comes to that. Um, because of his quickness and his ability to not only score the ball in different ways, but also be able to facilitate. And that is something that John Moran has taken to the next level this year and elevated the Grizzlies in a, in, a, in a large fashion. But I also think this year, too, others have stepped up their, own, their games in their own ways, which is what made John Morant's game easier. The Desmond Baines of the world, Dylan Brooks is of the world. Um, I, I like Tyus Jones. Tyus Jones, hey. he's been killing. As yes, a he point. has. He's been killing as, yes, a he has. as a point guard. And I like how even at times late in games, they will play John Moran and Tyus in the same time, so John doesn't have to be doesn't have to be ball dominant. He's playing off the ball and letting Tyus run the show, which is something that's been beneficial to Memphis. I think now that they had that experience of getting their heart broken, you know, by losing to the Warriors, um, you know, they're gonna they're, they've used they've used that as fuel and energy to come back and play even better at a higher clip. And bring the inefficiency that does come with that. And you can just tell they play much more together in a much more of a cohesive unit. And but there's one thing though that I noticed, especially in this last game, uh, that I saw uh in person. There was a lot of moments where Ja and Jaron Jackson were not on the court at the same time. There was a lot of moments where Ja Morant was either starting a unit, and then whenever he's on the bench, Jaron Jackson comes in. I think they realized, or I think that's the reason why that's, that, that, that dynamic is taking place, is because they know that they both can play together, but they thrive when one is on the bench and one is on the other. It's like, it's, what, it's like what the Bulls are trying to do with DeMar and Zach. They can play well together, but they thrive more when one star is on the floor and the other one isn't, when it comes to their second unit. Memphis figuring that out, just that little bit of a switch helps change your team's dynamic drastically. And that is something that Memphis has taken to the next level on all fronts, not just from shooting the ball and scoring the ball, but defensively as well. Jaron Jackson is going to eventually start making a name for himself as a defensive player of the year as he keeps going at the rate that he's going because his defensive, his defensive blueprint impact is all over this team. And combining that with what Steven Adams brings to the table, that defense is electrifying. I'm on, on, on the front court. So Memphis, to answer your question, they're on the verge. They're on their way. Do I think they're going to get to the finals and be a finals contender this year? To be determined, because I got to see what the playoffs are going to look like for them. We know they can ball in the playoffs, 
But you're talking about barely making it through last year with the Minnesota Timberwolves and then going to the Warriors and getting and getting crushed by them. I need to see if they've grown that much more when the playoff times come around to see if, okay, they really are something, our team for a finals contender per se. But what they have right now with John moving, moving, uh, leaving the front and Jaron Jackson falling right behind, that's something special that they got brewing over there in, 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 uh, in Memphis, man. Bill Street is cracking. Bill, Bill Street is cracking down there. And rightfully so and rightfully deserving. They they need that. And the league needs that. So they're, if they're not a, content, a final contender now, they're well on their way. I got a chance to check out John Moran, his rookie season prior to the pandemic during All-Star Weekend here in Chicago at the Rising Stars challenge. Him and Luka Doncic was out there, Zion, Trey Young, you know, the star stars, the young stars, the stars of tomorrow at that time, who have now elevated themselves into the upper echelon among the best of the best in the league. He's worth the full price of admission to see if he happened. And I, I'm glad you got a chance to see him. With, with, with all of that said, this team is reminding me of a young San Antonio squad under Greg Popovich. It don't matter who in the lineup, they're going to find a way to get the job done, and they stepping up. You brought up Tyus Jones. Man, this dude has scored 20 points in two out of his last four outings, 20 points or more in two out of his last four outings, and he's averaging 21 points with eight assists in games in which he starts. Mm -hmm. And he had a game the other night against Atlanta where he put up a double-double, scoring 22, a game-high 22 points on 8-14 shooting from the floor to go alongside 11 assists, scoring 12 out of his 22 points from beyond the arc. Plus, he could get inside that paint if you don't get in front of him and knock down that floater and come off the screen to beat you with the mid-range jumper if you don't come up to contest. Is he showing why the Grizzlies made him the highest-paid backup point guard in the league this past summer, signing that two-year, $29 million extension out in late June? I I, I like what I'm seeing, man. I, I like what I'm seeing. I, I see a floor general in him. I see a leader, a guy who can get a bucket when need to, and he's really spotted Morant on nights in which he sits due to injury arrest. And, and and they got a strength in numbers man, mantra going on. They a next man up mentality that I just love to see. Like, we talk about how Desmond Bain's been missing time. And you brought up Darren Jackson Jr., who has been a hell of a defensive stalwart as of late. He had eight blocks in the win against the Atlanta Hawks alongside of Tyus Jones' great performance. But John Conshaw, mm-hmm. you know, the West Chicago name, he's provided a huge spark for the Grizzlies. Two, when his number's been called upon, filling in for Desmond Bain in the last month in the starting lineup. Not only with his shooting to help space the floor, which he's known for, but crashing the rebounds and doing a little bit of everything. Even when he got the ball in his hands with the dribble handoff, he's making the right reads. He's kind of been to, to Memphis, in my opinion, where Austin Reeves has been to the Lakers a little bit, just on a, on a smaller scale. Like, he had mm-hmm. 9.7 rebounds and 5 assists in just 24 minutes of work against Atlanta. And he's shooting nearly 38% from the floor, a long range, might I add, in the 17 games in which he started this season. That's huge when you can be able to get immediate contributions from guys 
coming fresh off the bench into the starting lineup. It's a next man up mentality going on in Memphis, and I and I love to see it. And you brought up Dylan Brooks. He's also been solid. He's putting up close to 20 a night to start the month of December over the course of this winning streak. And he's shooting close to 40% from downtown. And you have athletes who can attack you off the dribble like Morant or Bain can and either score against you, if not kick it out to their fellow castmates when the double team comes for open look with a bruiser in, in the post, Steven Adams, who can set the best of picks to free these guys up as well as rebound with the best of them too and a defensive stalwart in Jackson who can protect the rim with the best of them. Of course you got a chance. How could you not? Especially with the way in which this bench unit is currently playing. And you move those guys back into their normal roles for them to thrive? Fire Williams just came back off an of injury. You know, they, they I, I really like what I'm seeing. It, it can't nobody, I mean nobody, stop John Morant from getting inside the lane right now. It's been an issue the last two years. And mm -hmm. I thought maybe, you know, with an offseason full of work, maybe some of these scouts will find a way to, you know, make life a little bit more hell for them. But they haven't found a way. And it, it, it doesn't matter what you do. If if you if you try and, you know, trail his, his, his backside, he's going to get you on his hip and he's going to find a way to, to finish. If, if, if the helper man come with that floater with either his left or right hand, you can take away, you, you can, I, I saw a clip on ESPN the other day from a game where he played against Minnesota and the assistant coach on Minnesota, I don't know what his name was or, or anything, but like I can hear him say he's going left. He's going left. And Jaden McDaniels came up on him and did a hell of a job trying to take away that left-hand side off the off the pick and roll. And, and didn't, you know, get lost or didn't trail on his back hip. He drives inside with that left hand. As soon as he played the angle perfectly, Josh Switch, go with that right hand, two points. It's, it's, it's amazing, man, what he's able to do and his ability to stop and, and cut on dimes, man, and, and, and force guys to flip their hips. And when they do that, they pretty much took. Yeah, man, it, it job job's scary. He's giving a lot of young and a, and a lot of I, I said Ja is a combination of a Russell Westbrook and Derrick Rose mix. When you talk about his aggression to the paint when he drives in the when he drives to the basket, his quickness. And the agility speed that he does have with the ball, uh, dribbling the ball up and down the court. But what also makes him special is the ability to finish around the basket so good. Yeah. And the and to be able to have that soft enough touch after going full speed to finish around the rim, that's very hard to guard. However, the one thing I do worry about with Ja is prayerfully the fact that he can stay healthy and not injure himself. Because I know what you mean. Because the way he plays was very Derrick Rose esque. I know what you mean. What happened with Derrick Rose? Like he 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 has to learn where now, right now, athleticism is is, is taking over his skill set. He has to find where he can. He, he needs to find a nice balance with skill set and uh, to maintain and maintaining a nice amount of athleticism to a point where athleticism doesn't get him killed. Because there's a lot of times when he drives to the basket. And he's going aggressive against these big dudes. And I'm looking at him, we're looking at him trying to land. And I'm like, ooh, I, I didn't look that, that may not look too good. Or that could have went the wrong way. 
Right. You know, and that was Derrick Rose's problem. He didn't know how to adjust his body and play in a, play, play in a certain way to where he can maintain that still that quickness and that agility and speed and play it when necessary, but be better when it comes to landing on his feet better and being having better control of it and better control of his body. So I don't want Ja to go through what Derrick Rose went through with that because that ultimately was the what helped, even though Derrick Rose is a testament to what skill and hard work looks like, it, it, it derailed his career a lot. I don't want Ja to go through the same thing because if he keeps playing at this rate and at this level and he doesn't know how to stay, how to maintain control of his body, that's going to come back to, that's going to come back to bite them. And that's the last thing Memphis needs. Oh, absolutely. I, I understand exactly what you're saying, but I think that's why he's incorporated the floater into his game a hell of a lot more over the, the most recent stretch of games in which we've been able to witness the greatness of John Morant. Because when he first came into the league, especially that rookie year, he was trying to posterize everybody. Yep. Everybody. I think he's learned to find a balance. And you you can tell when he go get ready for these games, like he got all that padding on and stuff. Like he's protecting himself like the gladiator he is when it comes to attacking that paint. But the thing that it makes him so dangerous to me, man, is that like you can't really sag off of him. Because when you do, he he he'll find the shooters if you try to collapse onto a rep on the drive. He'll find the shooters. And, but then if you come up and you a big man like Rudy Gobert, you slew-footed, you can get got around yeah. the rim. And, 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 and Rudy was talking about that with an ESPN reporter this week about how, like, that's what makes him so hard to guard, not just the fact that he can score, but if, you know, you you you, you can take away the drive all you want. He he has enough speed and, and, and strength to get it to his shooters to knock down the open three-point shots that he, he creates. Like, the, the gravity and attention that he commands, man, for a guy that size and his ability to lead the league and points in the paint as a dude that's six foot three, that's scary. Because he's putting up big man numbers in the paint. And if you see him, you'd be like, ain't no way. Ain't no way. And, and, and I think he's learning to how to educate himself on not, you know, going just with reckless abandon to the rim in the manner in which we used to see Westbrook and Rose do it during the primes of their careers. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm not saying that he's not learning that or incorporating a lot of that stuff because you, what you're saying is definitely right. I, 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 it's just something that, you know, you've always had a, a, had a worry worry for. And I understand. It's something that, you know, you just want to see him be more aggressive in doing and applying per se when it comes to that wisdom. But Jaws Jaws special man. Jaws a special player and that's a rare talent and a rare gem that Memphis found when coming out of Murray State man. That's something that comes once a generation and that's and that's truly something that he's displayed. He's displaying it right now showing that all the things continues to improve maybe just like just like Zion Maybe down the line in some way, shape, or form, he may have to have some of that conversation talk too. Not saying he's going to win it, but he might have to have his name in there too. And is and I'll tell you right now, City of Memphis agrees. 
Because every time this dude, <laughs> every time this dude dude. is announced, it's it, it's all types of chants. It's all types of uh, of loud cheers going on in the stadium. That's that 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 city has embraced John Morant, and John Morant has definitely embraced that city of Memphis. He's gonna be a, he's gonna be there for a long time, and that's something I want for him. But I also want the NBA to recognize as well, because these smaller markets is already hard to get talent over there. The fact that Jaws there in Memphis, that's gonna help change things up a little bit. Speaking of small markets, we talk about two teams this week are highlighting two teams that reside in small markets, New Orleans, Memphis. Between these two teams, which team are you buying stock in the most as of right now to be the small market franchise that advances all the way first? Because both of them are, 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 are rather hot right now. They feature two stars in the game. I'm not going to call them rising stars no more, but they're stars in the game. And Zion mm-hmm. Williamson and John Morant. Who do you believe gets there first? I, I want to say I want to say Memphis. Okay. But I'm going with New Orleans. And the reason why I'm going with New Orleans is because of pretty much Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum. Those two know what it takes in the no they they've been through the ups and downs, especially CJ McCollum when it comes to going to deep playoff runs. And they know what it takes to get there. Now, granted, the Grizzlies have been more recent in that department. They know what it's like to play against the best of the best. You know, they got knocked out by the champs last year, last year in the second round. So they know what it takes to improve and get to each level of the playoff situation every year. But when you have someone like a CJ McCollum who knows what it takes to get to the Western Conference Finals, when you have, you know, rising, and on top of that, Zion Williams is finally getting his first taste of what playoff basketball is going to be like. If, if as long as they improve, that's going to be something different. We know Jaws that do, but Zion's another beast. <laughs> that's a whole other level of beast. And having that in the playoffs, uh, along with the veteran leadership of CJ McCollum, who knows what it takes to win in those moments, I got. I, I, I I'm going to go with the Pelicans moving forward uh, and accelerating at a quicker rate than the Memphis Grizzlies are at this present moment. I agree with you. You know, Sports Illustrated senior writer Chris Heron, he brought up a real salient point when discussing how the playing round has benefited the league in a lot of ways in a piece he dropped on Zion and the Pelicans being the real deal earlier this week. He was discussing how it's grown to serve as an extension of the NBA postseason and how runs previous teams made within them help to shape what all transpired in the year to follow. Think about during the league's early days in the bubble. We saw a young and hungry Sun squad at the time nearly forced their way into the playoffs after reeling off eight wins in a row down in Orlando, mm-hmm. an occurrence that proved just enough to get the attention of Chris Paul down in Oklahoma City, who was able to work out a trade to land down in the desert and help guide them to the NBA Finals a year later, besides Devin Booker in the backcourt. Then we saw another squad. In the Grizzlies, who we talking about? The same year as the Suns took their step upward in the West, going about doing the same exact thing, stunning the Golden State Warriors in the play-in round for the AC, then building off of that playoff experience that they gained along the way, losing in the first round to Utah, 
to finish among the top of the West playoff picture with the number two seed last year. And they look just as poised as this Pelicans team to go on a deeper run of their own this year. But this was a team last year that did great things without Zion. And now you add Zion into the mix. It, 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 like they haven't even hit their stride yet. They haven't. And they, they got a lot of great pieces around this guy to do great things. And Zion don't need all the touches to be effective. Mm -mm. The numbers this guy is putting up right now on, on, on the field goal percentages, I wish I had the numbers in front of me, but like, man, like some nights I look at the field goal percentages and I'm like, he passing all the tests. <laughs> with these field goal percentages, man, even all off of average grades. And, and sometimes he's shooting the ball close to 80% some nights. Yeah. Because no one can get in front of him and stop him when he got a head full of steam going downhill. You don't want to be in that man way. I, I've seen way more guys make business decisions in the league against him than Giannis. And he has a hell of a touch around the painted area and even from beyond the arc, which was something that so many scouts questioned prior to his arrival in the league. Yeah. In spite of him showing that he could shoot the three ball dating back to his days of Duke. So I, I'm buying all the stock with the New Orleans Pelicans right now. I'm I'm buying it. And no disrespect to John Morant and, and, and the Memphis Grizzlies. I think they're going to be there. I think that's a team that can easily get the number one seed in the West. But I, I, I really like the pieces on this, on this Pelican squad. And I think defensively, they got wings, man, who if one go down, we could put another one in to replace him. He going to do the job. And we're seeing it now with Herb Jones out. Mm -hmm. Imagine what's going to happen when Herb Jones come back in the mix. Imagine what's going to happen when these, when these guys start knocking down the open three-point looks that are generated off of the gravity in which Zion commands. Because every time Zion coming off a pin down on a screen and a dribble handoff, he's seeing two, three bodies. Somebody open. Every time, all the time. Yeah, I think, and I think it's scary how when we talk about the current makeup of this Pelicans team, the Lakers... In that Anthony Davis tra uh, trade, the Pelicans have their have the Lakers pick for this upcoming draft. Right. If the Lakers don't improve, the Pelicans keep that pick, which means, lo and behold, they could get even richer. They could be literally part of the Victor one of your sweepstakes. Now, and if then if that happens, pairing Victor with Zion, oh gosh, oh forget it, forget it. We're talking about the Pelicans winning the championship. Like that, that's and that's what's even more scary. We're talking about David Griffin and what he's done, man. If, if that plays out, good luck, good luck. But we riding them in as champions. It, that's a, that's a given. We riding them in as champions. And the Big Easy is going to be in a way in an even even more better position than they ever ever have, which is still a scary sight to see, considering how strong the Western Conference is. And how other teams are emerging in the Western Conference, like the Grizzlies. That's that's gonna be scary. If that all plays out, 
it's already scary now, but it's really going to be scary hours when if that if that if that scenario plays out. Man, if the Pelicans get Victor Wimbenyama, and I'd be lying if I said that I didn't think about it because I have, I have. It was on my mind during opening night watching the Lakers take on the Warriors. If that if that happens, woo, woo, a lot of free agents go want to go to New Orleans. Some of the guys that's on this current roster, they might not be around, but they're so serviceable with their skill set. I'm thinking about what to come in return. Yeah, and, and, and I want to add this about Memphis, by the way. Like Danny Green is still on the sideline, and street clothes right now, but it will be set to return sooner rather than later. No telling what they're going to do with him, but he'll be an interesting piece if they decide to keep him and add him to that mix with with John, that talented supporting cast. But man, I don't think the league want to see a, a Wimbenyama and Zion pair, pairing. Uh-uh. They don't, they don't want to see that. That's 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 not, that's not going to be with the doctor order for the league. You, you're talking about a, a series of Larry O'Brien trophies out in the Big Easy if that if that goes down. But I, I want to ask you one more thing prior to us moving on is we focusing a lot on Pelicans and Grizzlies this show. Zion and Ja, they got plenty of attention coming into the 2019 NBA draft as they were both selected by the following squads, number one and number two respectively, just three years ago. Yet, despite both of them living up to the deal, and some haven't really garnered attention nationally, as one may have expected, in an era where small market teams have become pushed and lead parity is better than it's ever been, as Bomani Jones was recently talking about on his The Right Time podcast, why do you think that is? Like, they, why do you think they, they, they haven't garnered the attention nationally that they really deserve, man? Especially being household names coming out of college. It's the markets that they're playing. I think well, it's we push the small markets late. I'm I'm no, and everybody even let's put it this way. Okay. Even though there are even though they um the small markets are getting a lot more attention than previously ever in their history, they still don't compete with the big dogs and the big franchises. It, that's how wide the disparity is between markets like that. We're talking more about LeBron James and the Lakers and how trash they are more than we're talking about Zion and Ja. Like, that's the, yeah, that's the LeBron James effect, but it's also because it's the Lakers in Tinseltown and Hollywood and their expectations of winning. Same with Golden State. It's like, it's, it's all about if you have to have big markets that are willing to, you know, they, 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 they drive the league. These big markets drive the league. And I think because Memphis and New Orleans, although to us as basketball fans, big cities that we love and express and show a lot of love to, to the average basketball fan, it may not, it may not be that way, especially when it comes to the league. The league's about narratives. They should be writing this narrative way, but they're also writing the narratives that brings the most dough. And that's, and that's what happens when you play with big, big, you know, for big markets. I, so I think that's really what it is compared to, you know, superstars that we have watched all this time in the LeBron James's and the Stephen Curry's, Kevin Durant's and things of that sort. They're still around and thriving in the league. So even though they're so 
I think they're going to always override the new up and coming stars anyways, just because they're still around and, and, and playing at a, and playing in their own prime levels still. Zion and Ja are just really getting started to take that extra leap. So it's going to be a little while before those two stars get the attention that they deserve because of that and because they have to continue to win in those small markets, which brings the publicity that a lot of these major networks are not going to are going to give them, but they haven't been given them because they're not the big teams. They're not the big franchises across the league. You know, in my opinion, I think it all comes down to something that's real short and sweet. It's a certain type of U.S. born NBA star who looks a certain way and doesn't fit the image that we like or care for. And I think that plays a role. I really do. Because these guys are doing everything that's asked of them. They've catapulted these franchises a great deal from the moment, you know, they, they arrived to now. Think about where the New Orleans Pelicans were prior to Zion Williams' arrival. They yep. had a disgruntled Anthony Davis on their roster. They weren't really going anywhere. Changes were needed, and they came when he arrived. With, with John Morant, Memphis had just closed the door on the, the, the grindhouse era yeah. with the likes of Mike Conley, Mark Gasol. And Tony Allen during that Lionel Hollins era of basketball there, in which they went to a Western Conference final before getting swept by the Spurs. To me, they it, it's just we, we don't we don't appreciate American-born players anymore, man. And I think that's sad and I think that's unfortunate. No matter what market they play in. And I think if these guys continue to play at the level in which they have. We're going to have to really keep our eyes open to this because James Harden is the last U.S.-born player to win the NBA MVP award. That was in 2018. Yeah. The last four years, you have had the MVP award won by two players, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who won back-to-back in 1819 and 1920, and Nikola Jokic, who won during the 2021 season and the 21-22 season, who was the reigning MVP of the league. I think this year could be the year where we see the first American-born player win MVP for the first time in five years. I do. If you really think about it, the top candidates right now, I would say, are Jason Tatum and Devin Booker. And as of this week, I would add Zion in the top three especially with where his team is in the standings, I, I would put Zion over Luke. I would put Zion over Nikola Jokic. I would. But will the national media feel the same way? I'm not sure. Right. But there was a time when we did award winning in mm -hmm. the NBA. There was a time when in order for you to win the MVP award, not only did you have to lead the league in statistical categories, but you sure as hell had to have your team within the top three, if not finish with the best record in the league. Are we going to get back to that? 
that remains to be seen. I don't know. But I think it's a question that we need to ask ourselves, especially in an era where there's a changing of the guard and you have a lot of new up and coming fresh faces in the league who need to be marketed and need to be promoted. Because while I do understand that the Boston Celtics, the Brooklyn Nets, the Los Angeles Lakers, the Golden State Warriors are the big four among teams in the NBA right now, and I'd even add, I'll even add the Los Angeles Clippers into the mix with the stars that they have, and Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. But you, you, you these guys are coming. And at mm-hmm. some point, their stories need to be told. You told us the stories that sold us on them when they were coming out of college, continue to tell the story. Because in my opinion, there's a rivalry brewing between these two franchises. There's a rivalry. They lie within the same division and they're five hours apart and travel. Like what are what 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 are we what are we doing? We these games have to be nationally televised games from here on out as long as these two reside in these markets. And I believe that if we care more about American-born players to tell their stories, that these guys would be household names. We just don't care about them no more unless if they're Kevin Durant and LeBron James. We know them. Let's get to know John Morant and Zion Williams. Just food for thought. There really is a good food for thought, especially when you really think about it. The NBA is so hellbound on expanding and making it such an international game. They focus more on international players. That's why you hear so much about the Luka Doncic's. That's why you hear so much about Giannis. That's why you hear so much about Nikola Jokic. And that's why you hear so much about, about Victor. Because... Yeah. They promote the hell out of it, by the way, because... You can see his games on the NBA app now. Yes. And, and, and I pray that he lives up to the bill. I've never seen a prospect like him. I was just telling my father this earlier this afternoon, talking about Victor Wimbayama. He's not even really that privy or familiar with his game. But I like what I see because I see a guy that, who is seven foot two can handle the ball like a Kevin Durant pull up from 30, but at the same time protect the, the rim like a Ralph Sampson and run the floor. Like, it, it, it's scary. It's very scary. And I don't like to do too many player comps, but that's just me being real. That's what I see. Oh, yeah, most definitely. So it's like, that's why, you know, your food for thought, you know, people got to get hungry. They got to start eating that thing because <laughs> it's, it's real. It's, it's a real story and narrative that isn't addressed um, in national media. And it's eventually going to have to be, especially when you talk about not just American-born players, but Black African-American players Thank you. that are taking over, that really have, you know, excelled this league to another level. It took a Black man to make it international. Michael Jordan. It took a Black man for it to thrive, to, to maintain and flourish over uh, in, in a lot of ways overseas. Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. You know, American-born black players that are taking this game to the next level. Just because we have foreign at foreign athletes in, which is fine, which is great, we want that. Absolutely. Doesn't mean they should take over the narrative of what the league really is. 
Because at the end of the day, there's still more brothers in this league than any other race in the in the, in the entire league. Not just on players, but but also as well as coaching staffs. Yeah. So that's something that we should not forget. It's been, and especially when you talk about re- even retired players associations. Come on now. Like, there's a lot of us. Ain't It's not a lot of foreigners. That's just the reality of things. You can expand it, and the league has expanded, you know, expanded itself to where a lot more foreign athletes are coming, which is great. We the brothers still coming too. Like we still here too, bro. We ain't going nowhere. We we really we literally built the league. So let's not so let so let so you know let's not get carried away with certain narratives and add like oh this is gonna be a new norm. Nah. That new norm, that, that new norm is only just gonna be it's, it's just gonna be plateaued more. Because because it's not gonna change the fact that brothers are still running this league. And you won't have a league without us in it. That's just the reality. Well said. I, I wanna segue over from talking about the two hot shot squads in the West to some league wide news in which the NBA recently revealed a series of new and improved tweaks to trophies designed in partnership with artist Victor Solomon for his end-of-season individual awards given out to the league's elite organizations and his craftsmen in the process, ranging from the Joe Dumars Trophy, which honors sportsmanship, the Twyman Stokes Teammate of the Year Trophy, the Rare Arbok Trophy, which goes to the Coach of the Year season's end, and the Executive of the Year Award, in addition to unveiling a new award known as the Maurice Podoloff Trophy in honor of the NBA's first commissioner, which will be awarded to the team that finishes with the best record in the league through 82 games. This trophy features a crystal ball cut into 82 panels and sits on a pedestal combining the structures of the Eastern Conference Post and Western Conference Rings, according to the league's official press release, announcing the recent tweaks to the following awards last week, while the league also made yet another press release showcasing redesigns to six other trophies for performance award winners while also introducing the NBA Clutch Player of the Year Award, as the following awards will be set to honor the pioneers of the league who, according to the NBA's official unveiling of the news, helps define the standards of excellence that these trophies represent. The NBA's MVP award will now be awarded with a trophy named and made in the image and honor of the iconic great Michael Jordan, while the recipient of the brand new Clutch Player of the Year award will receive the Jerry West trophy named in honor of the man whose silhouette still stands on the league's official logo, the NBA's Defensive Player of the Year will receive the Hakeem Olajuwon Trophy named in honor of the former Rockets All-Star legend and all-time leader in block shots. Rookie six-man and most improved player of the year awards have been named in honor of Will Chamberlain, John Havlicek, and George Mikan, respectively. On top of this, the league also announced six new trophies to commemorate division winners as the league named them in honor of six African-American trailblazers in the sport. The winners of the Atlantic, Central, and Southeast divisions in the East will take home the Nat Sweetwater Clifton, Wayne Embry, and Earl Lloyd Trophy, respectively, while the winners of the Southwest, Northwest, and Pacific divisions 
from the West will each garner the Willis Reed, Sam Jones, and Chuck Cooper trophies disclosed this week? It was a lot of announcements, whole lot of change in the guard. The awards that we once saw are, are no longer. It looks more of like a uniform type of design, if you will, when you put them all on the table together and see them. What's your thoughts on the unveiling of these awards? And what's your thoughts on the new Maurice Podoloff Trophy awarding the team with the best record in the regular season? Do you, you like that? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> what? Because what are you doing? You want to crown me for regular season success? I thought this was about championships. I thought we was talking about, I thought we was trying to win championships. We trying to get rings. We're not trying to get, we're not trying to get notifications. Like, if you want to win a championship, yeah, you got to be the best team in the league. You got to strive for that, okay? That doesn't come in the regular season. That comes in the playoffs. So, no. Because, no, it just, it just, that just doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. I think all this does is make people feel better about themselves when they lose. And I think at the same time, you're also allowing other people opportunities to get more money in their checks. Because if you have incentives-based contracts, which we know a lot of players do, you win in these awards, guess what? You just help me earn an extra bonus in my check. Or at least increase the odds of me getting a higher pay deal in my next contract. Outside of that, I don't know, especially when it comes to these, like, division, you know, the winners of the divisions and stuff like that. I don't like, I'm not a, let's put it this way, I'm not a fan of being awarded for accomplishing things in a regular season that have nothing to do, especially from a team perspective, with the actual ultimate outcome of the goal. Because when you talk about the award for best record in the league, Let's just say the Denver Nuggets get the best record in the league. Okay, congratulations. They've got the best record in the league, but they get bounced in the first round of the playoffs. Were they really the best team in the league? No. No, they weren't. So when so th that, that type of stuff doesn't make sense. I like how the league is doing a lot to, you know, pay homage to uh, the greats of the league, the legends. Especially in the division round, when you when the division uh, awards, when you actually read them, how they follow um, through Black history, paying homage to Africa, African Americans who paid uh, made a, a huge impact in the league historically. I like how they're trying to pay homage to those guys and legends, but at the same time, how many awards are you going to give out just to make people feel good when the ultimate when the league is number one a competitive league and two, you are supposed to have a team goal or oriented goal of winning championships. Individually, okay, that makes sense. That's different because that's individual accolades. But when you're talking about team awards, no. Nah. You, you can't justify that to me because nothing is justified until you actually go out do what you get paid to do, which is not just to win games, but to win championships and to win titles. You can't do that by being one of the best team in the league and, fa and failing in the playoffs. That just doesn't work for me, so I so I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not fully a fan of that. But I get what they're trying to do. I, I I just don't I just don't support I don't support all of it. Some of it yes, 
But I don't support all of it. I'll put it to you like this. If it's going to lead to players playing more games in the regular season and not sitting out due to low management and stuff like that, for the fans who pay their hard-earned money to watch these guys, I support it. Do I believe that these awards, these team awards, rather, such as the Maurice Podoloff Trophy, which the best team in the regular season, or, or the team that finishes with the best record in the regular season will be awarded? Do, do I believe that that will incentivize guys to stop doing what they're currently doing? No. But I don't mind rewarding regular season success. I don't. However, everybody still knows around the league what the most important trophy is. And it doesn't take away from that. The way I see it, the Maurice Podoloff trophy is now to the NBA what the commissioner's trophy is to the National Hockey League. It's just the, it's just the award that goes to the team with the best record come seasons in. That's all it is. But even those guys know in the National Hockey League that the Stanley Cup is what they play for come seasons in. No different than the Larry O'Brien trophy in the very sport that we're talking about in the NBA. No, no trophy will ever be as grand from a team perspective is that. But I think it's a cool honor. And I think it would mean a lot for a team in a small market to win, especially when championships are harder to come by, as we know, in smaller markets due to their inability to attract high commodity free agents. Unless if they do so via the draft and build it up to where these guys want to come. So I, I don't mind that. The division winners, I find that interesting. I find that interesting. I, I, I don't know if I care for it, but I, I find it interesting. I understand why they're doing it. And, and it makes sense why they're doing it because I'm pretty sure if you ask the casual NBA fan, if they can name the divisions and which teams play in which divisions, they probably couldn't do it. Because in, in basketball, we don't uphold divisions in the level in which we do in a sport like, let's say, the NFL mm -hmm. or in Major League Baseball, where in order for you to make it to the playoffs, the best path toward securing a playoff berth is through winning your division. Yeah. We don't really we don't really make too big of a deal of that in basketball. But if that's gonna make guys want to come to the gym each and every night and show up and play 82, I'm all for it. I don't mind it. But I do agree with you. It's not the most important award. Neither one of them are. The Larry O'Brien is still the most important award among collective team success in the National Basketball Association. I don't give a damn how you look at it. And, and that's what they always remember. They won't remember who won that award, the Maurice Podolov Trophy. The casual fan won't at least. But They'll remember who won in the NBA Finals. So I get the points that you're making, but I also get why they're doing it. And I think they're doing it to up the ante during the regular seasons, starting with this year and in the years to come.
Well, let's put it this way. Team awards don't get me to the Hall of Fame. Team awards. I understand. Team awards, I, I understand. I, I don't. I don't want to be. I would. I, I don't want a Hall of Famer. I would. I don't want a Hall of Famer to go up to his speech saying, "Well, you know, we my team won this award at the." And, I don't and, think you know, you'll see team. that though. Huh? I don't think you will see that though. I think those awards are going to mean more to the fans of those teams than the players. I don't think you will see too many players parading around with a Maurice Podoloff trophy, unless if they got a Larry O'Brien next to it, and they on the uh, on the double decker bus or the championship parade. But I, outside of that, I, I don't I don't really think you're gonna see too much fanfare amongst the players with it. I just think it's an incentive for guys to keep playing. Like I mean, let's say you got the best team in the East and the best team in the West. And they're like a game apart or two games apart from the best record overall in the league. Yeah, I mean, it gives you something to play for if that's what you want to do. Cool. But yeah, I don't think they're going to make an end-all, be-all about it. And it shouldn't be. But it's just for the league. And I think that's more so an award for the fans of those organizations who end up finishing with the best record in the regular season. Well, maybe we should create our own award so that way when we do our own thing, and we and we do great throughout the season. We can get incentive checks by by the time we're done because we can say, "Oh, we won this award, you know, for our work that we do here at War Media so and our Oprah Run Show." So therefore, I deserve a check raise. I deserve a raise in my salary because of X, Y, and Z. Why? I mean, why not? That, that, that's what the NBA is going to be doing. You will be seeing players get mega contracts because oh, they won this award or they was part of this team award and stuff like that. Why, I, I mean, that's that's what's going to help the players get paid. Sure, why not? I mean, I don't blame them. Take advantage of it. But, yeah, I, I'm an old-school type of guy in this realm. I'm about my rings, brother. I'm about my rings. Individual accolades are nice, but they, those are the ones that are going to help me get paid. You know what helps me get like, established my legacy? Me winning these rings. And that's what I want, and that's what I want my, want my focus to be on if I was a player in the NBA playing that way. But I want to take this even a step further. Since clearly, we're talking about all these awards, all these changes that the league is making. Can we change the Jerry West logo? Because you already gave him a whole trophy. We could change the Jerry West logo while we at it. We can make that the Kobe logo. We can give it to somebody else. Jerry West had that had that logo for I don't know how long in the league. And then you have that on top of give him another award. Nah, switch it up. Give that logo to somebody else. And I do think Kobe would be a good one. Give it to the Black Mamba. Change everything. You want players to play? They'll play for a Kobe Bryant logo. They want to play for a Jerry West logo. Like, <laughs> switch it up then. Let's go. I, I feel like that's coming soon when you look at all these changes. I don't know when or how soon, but I feel like it has to be at least on the horizon. But I want to ask you about the individual awards, these awards that are named in honor of some of the game's greats. Do you believe that the league got it right? when it came down to honoring the pioneers of the game with these awards? Because I've seen a lot of debates, back and forth debates, on Twitter and across social media. I didn't engage in them because I wanted to save and share my opinion here before I issued any further opinion on it across social media. But but some of these debates are worth having, I feel like, in, in my opinion. But do, you, but do you think that they got it right? Uh, some, yeah. Okay. Some, yeah. But others, not necessarily. Like, 
I'm trying to I'm trying to pull up the trophies uh these uh these names now. I can pull them up for you because for the MVP, that's named in honor of Michael Jordan. They got the that right. The defensive player of the year will receive the Hakeem Olajuwon trophy. The mm. rookie of the year will be is named in honor of Will Chamberlain, who they brought up his stats being the main reason as to why that is, because he had like one of the more uh, most historically dominant seasons by a rookie in NBA history. The six-man award is named in honor of John Havlicek, who I believe in his first several seasons with Boston came off of the bench and route to four all-star appearances and winning multiple championships. And the most improved player of the year award goes to George Mikan, who is shown on the award doing the Mikan drill. Well, shout out to George Mikan and his family, former DePaul alum. You, know, you already know, baby. You already know. First superstars of the game. So you, I, I, I respected that. I liked that. I thought that was classy. But, well, but what are your thoughts overall? I'm, and then I'll get the money. I would say I get the Will Chamberlain one, but I w- I don't know if that would have been my choice for rookie of the year. I probably would have chose someone else just because Wilt was so dominant of a star player that you know you, people just don't view people don't look at Will Chamberlain like oh yeah he was killing us rookie. They look at him as in like this dude was a Hall of Famer with big time stats that just changed the dynamic of the game. That's something you put in like an MVP category. Like with the with the way he's played on every level of the floor, so I, I so I wouldn't put Wilt Chamberlain for Rookie of the Year. Um, John Havlicek, I understand, not my choice. I wouldn't pick John Havlicek to be the sixth man to, for a sixth man of year position. Um, and when it comes to Akeem Olajuwon, I love the dream. I love the dream. I think the only reason why he got that uh, title though. Because Bill Russell already has a title for the NBA Finals MVP. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have said Bill Russell should have had that thing. Yeah. But outside of that, those are my. But outside of that, I think they got everything else right. I'm not gonna lie. This gonna hurt some Chicagoans' feelings. I got number love for Michael Jordan, man. I got number love for him. I want to ask you this question just real quick: Who's the man with the most MVPs all time? In NBA history. I want to say Bill Russell. Kareem Ab- it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah. He won six to Michael's five. And let, let, let's make sure we clear on this. This ain't no disrespect to Michael Jordan. He managed to take home five NBA MVPs over the course of his illustrious career with the Bulls on the way to capturing six titles in the process for the city of Chicago. The marketing... The marketing impact, though, that he had, you know, we we know about that and why he was great. We don't question the overall impact that he had on the league. But David Stern and NBA Entertainment had an impact as well on the way in which we view him. As he played in a time where the media adored him so much that they wouldn't dare dispute anything he said or go behind him for news and fear that he'd never speak to him again. But to me... Kareem Abdul-Jabbar should have had it. I respect the history of the game. I wasn't alive to witness Hakeem's prime, let alone ever watch him play. But the fact that he's captured more MVPs than any player in the history of the sport, with six to go on his mantle, to go alongside of six rings, no player in a league 
where the game has become narrative driven in the media realm may ever hit that mark. It's hard to win back-to-back MVPs nowadays, let alone as many as he did in a 20-year career, might I add. I, I, I feel like his iconic skyhook, that would have been perfect for the MVP award. A perfect MVP uh, award to give out to players. And even though it's a shot that's not widely utilized or practiced amongst other young peers coming up in the game like it once was, you got to find a way to honor it. And I'm going to tell you why I have a problem with it, because he's on pace to get passed up by LeBron for most points all time in NBA history. And sooner rather than later, Kareem is going to become an afterthought. And we never, ever, when we discuss the greatest players in the history of basketball, we always say Michael, LeBron, Kobe. We never talk about Kareem. And Kareem did it on all three levels, high school, college, and pro. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he was a guy who practiced a faith that people at the time didn't condone. And not only that, he didn't have the most friendliest relationship with the media. We named the Social Justice Award in honor of Kareem. And yes, he was a social justice champion, but at the same time, I feel like that's kind of a slight because we're ignoring the greatness that he exhibited on the basketball court. If there's any award that I would name in honor of Michael Jordan, it would be the scoring champion trophy. That's Mike's award. Because Mike won 10 scoring titles. Ain't nobody breaking that record. Even though Mike did way more on the floor than just score, that's his. Just like for rebounding champions, if you want to really honor the greats, create individual awards for guys that lead the league in these categories. Create the Moses Malone trophy to reward the NBA's rebounding champion, the Oscar Robinson trophy for the NBA's assist champion, the Dikembe Mutombo and the Gary Payton trophy to pay homage and to commemorate the league's leaders and blocks as well as steals. Like, we love to pick and choose who they acknowledge and when they acknowledge them and where they acknowledge these certain greats in the NBA. But usually it's always the same guys over and over again. If you really go about paying attention, you would notice it. Because guys like Kareem and Oscar Robinson and Isaiah Thomas, they don't get their just due that they labored for and or were put in places to remain silent so that one could forget about their legacy and mark that they made on the league. Kareem didn't get along with the media. He was militant in his faith, and they criticized him for it, like I said. People remember Oscar Robinson as being the only man prior to Russell Westbrook to ever average a triple-double in a single season. Yet most of them can't even tell you he's the reason why free agency exists. And he's also the reason why players have not only been fortunate enough to reap the benefits of it by getting paid and having the right to choose where they aspire to play once their deals run out, but he's a huge factor as to why so many of these owners been able to rake in billions of dollars along the way. He sued the NBA in the first antitrust lawsuit ever in the history of basketball. He was never able to get a job in the sport after. I don't understand. If you really want to honor the legends of the game and the two pioneers of the game, you don't just pick and choose the same guys. Honor everybody. Honor everybody. Michael Jordan was the greatest athlete of the 20th century. A guy that everybody loved. Even if you hate him, it was to love him. But 
I just feel like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got to get his flowers. Like you, you naming a social justice award in honor of Kareem, but if you really wanted to shed light to people and their stories that were once a part of your league and maybe right your wrongs to a certain degree, if if um how can I say this? If you want to right your wrongs in an effort to be that social justice league that you really want to be, maybe you name the social justice award after a Mahmoud Abdul Raoul mm-hmm. or Craig Hodges. Yeah. I know the NBA won't do it. I know the NBA won't do it. And I know the reasons why they won't do it. But I think that's something that we need to really think about. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the verge of becoming an afterthought and an extinct name among NBA fans once LeBron James passes him up. And I think when that happens, yeah, we're going to talk about Kareem for a few days, but then as oftentimes prisoners of the moment, which we all are as humans, we we forget about it. He fades. I don't think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar deserves that. I don't. Especially when that man did some things for this game and had an iconic shot in the game that still stands the test of time, even though it's not widely used to the level in which it once was by the big men who now grace the floor. I just, I, I don't get it. I, I, I don't get it. I, I just don't. And, and there's no disrespect to Michael. I'm happy for him. I know fans in Chicago are happy. He deserves to be honored, but Kareem do too. And he ain't never really got that just do. And I wonder, and I can't help but wonder whether or not that has to do or deal with the way in which he interacted with the media. I'm pretty sure. Because he challenges the status quo. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it did. Um, That's... You know what you said is all valid quotes. Is all is all valid quotes and facts. Quite frankly, um, I wouldn't be mad at all if Kareem was was announced in that realm, or, or honored in that realm. I wouldn't be mad at all because he is the he is the the strong uh, strong foundation point and starting point really of what success looked like on all levels of basketball. So i would not dismiss i wouldn't i wouldn't be angry at that at all and i do think media does play a role in in, in a lot of those things because you know the nba is a narrative type of league so that does that does make a lot of sense it's from from you know your viewpoint and and everything but it also sheds light to what happens when you try to please everybody because when you try to please everybody you're going to miss somebody along the way and unfortunately situations like this occur well, yeah, there's a lot of players in the NBA that deserve a lot of honor, that deserve their homage and their flowers and the honor in more than more ways than one. But because of the great history of the league, the talent that surrounds it and what they do, there's always going to be room for debate as far as who should get, who deserves what type of honor when and when, and when their flowers should be given. And you know, I'm glad that I'm not in those rooms or in those seats making those decisions because a lot of like because you named a whole bunch of players, excuse me, that quite frankly don't get don't get the player the respect that they deserve, even within their own franchise that they played for. Yeah. And you know, that's that's an unfortunate reality that is out there. 
but that's bound to happen when you're trying to make an award or or create a situation where there's all, where there's very little room to honor everybody, but you have to pick a select few. That's why these awards make it come up. It, it comes up as an elitist type of award in a lot of ways because when you use elite people that are talked about and honored the most and reverenced the most, those are the ones that's going to get chosen. It's not the ones that were rever- that were revered in other ways. And even though they may be more rightfully deserving of those awards or those of that recognition. So it's always going to be a hit or miss when it comes to these type of situations. And your point is very valid, very valid. I would not be upset at all if Kareem did that. But, you know, just like players in, like Kareem and all the others you mentioned, they deserve their flowers too. And that doesn't just start with the league as a whole. It starts with the franchises they played with. And you a lot of and we and we know what a lot of the players you mentioned, they're not getting that same respect at all. Yeah, and last year as part of the league's 75th anniversary season, the league introduced a number of new trophies, one of which included an Eastern and Western Conference Finals MVP award named in honor of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, respectively. Now we know most teams focus on who takes home. The old ball comes season's end at the NBA Finals. While players approach injuries with caution more than ever before, the front offices, with nothing to play for, sit franchise cornerstones in the full-on pursuit of garnering better positioning in the draft and the effort to buy for a title one day as the regular season is oftentimes vacant of high-stakes action more than it has ever been. This has led to the inspiration of a mid-season tournament expected to come in the next couple of years. Has the league gone too far in its quest to try and replicate various elements of international soccer within this new wave business model under Commissioner Adam Silver? Because that's what it feels like when you see these awards, man. Yeah, most definitely. Well, I mean, that's that's the problem with that. Let's put it this way: the NBA in its own right has been its own copycat league. People have tried to follow what the NBA does um, in other leagues because of the fact that there's so much, there's so much uh, player control when it comes to players getting control of their destinies, their say so their contracts, all those things that a lot of leagues, quite frankly, don't have the relevant, have the access to do. So the, the NBA has been a blueprint for other leagues to follow in a lot of ways, especially even, even when it comes to social justice. Um, but at the same time, just because, I guess what I guess my point I'm trying to say is just because people are doing things in their own way that benefits their league doesn't mean you should be trying to copycat that and make it beneficial in your own league because it doesn't apply, it doesn't apply to every league especially depending on you know the league itself because the NBA is much more of a when I say concise league I'm talking about player numbers cuz there's only 15 players on a team you know, that's all you have to work with. NFL, there's more than that. Rocky, there's more than that. Uh, you know, baseball, there's roughly more than that. It's more than that. Than yeah, so when you talk about these different leagues, how – I don't want – sometimes you cannot copy everything because your league is unique within itself, just within, even within the people that help make the league run. So there's goods and bads, and there's pros and cons that come with that type of stuff. This – Specific situation is the con. Let's just be real. It's a con. Because it doesn't, 
it doesn't equate to the magnitude of what it really can mean. And that's a lost message along the way that screams, you know, we want, like you said earlier, and from your, to your point regarding incentivizing players to do more in a regular season. Great. But at the same time, there's going to be cons with that. Cons with that is players around the league, when you open up the pot just that much more for more recognition, some of those players that should have been mentioned are going to get the mention that they deserve. And you're not going to please everybody. That's just the reality of things. Of course, that's a given, but it's different when you already have a standard for one person to achieve an award versus now you got everybody that has a chance to achieve this award. At the end of the day, some it's, it's not going to benefit every it's not going to benefit everybody. You're going to miss somebody along the way. So I think it's a, I think it's a lot of cons to it. I do think it's a lot of cons and to this specific situation. And even though the NBA is great at being a blueprint for at least to copy from. And even at times they're copying, copying certain things. It's not always beneficial. You know, I, I'll say this on, on, on all of this. Like, that Clutch Player of the Year award, I'm anxious to see how they evaluate that or people will vote to do. Because that's just an interesting award to me. I, I didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting that they named it after Jerry West. Because I saw some arguments where people said, well, they could name it after Sam Jones. And when I think about Jerry West's career, as great as he was, he only won one championship. Yep. And he'll even let you know that. I took more losses to the Boston Celtics than I ever did wins. But he won eight rings out of his nine as an executive. Why not name the executive of the year award after Jerry West? I'm just saying, but I, but I, I, I'll move on. And, and, and you made some great points in regards to this conversation we had about the reconfiguration and redesigning of awards. I'll move on to going to part two of our NBA quarter season report card. Last week we highlighted the state of the Trailblazers, Raptors, and Nuggets thus far through the quarter mark of the season. This week we will assess another trio of NBA squads in part two of our three-part segment for our listeners here at Open Run, beginning with the Philadelphia 76ers, man. They currently fifth in the East with a 14-12 and record as of this week's recording, having won six out of their last 10 games, as they're currently squaring off against the Sacramento Kings at home while we speak. As we know, Joel Embiid's currently leading the league in scoring. Tyrese Maxey has been out of commission over the last couple of weeks due to suffering a fractured left foot. James Harden just recently returned back into action, averaging, or putting up a double-double, rather, in his last two outings coming into this recording. What grade would you give the Sixers squad, man? Is they're finally starting to, from what it appears on the outside looking in, coming into their own. I'm going to give them a B-. minus, And the reason why I'm going to give them a B- minus is because Health has plagued this team like crazy. So they haven't been able to get in, like I said, get into a flow of things until until recent. But at the same time, they still haven't figured out how to put all the all the things together to prevent them from taking from relapsing in a lot of ways. They have done a lot of winning, but they also put themselves in positions where they do a lot of losing. And there's no there's no consistency from the Sixers 
that demonstrate, you know, that the identity of this team. They know what Joel Embiid, but they don't play like it every night. And through it all, I think they're also starting to realize that James Harden ain't a second option. He's really a third option with Tyrese Maxey emerging as that number two. And with them finally realizing that, it's hard to also – you see why the Philadelphia 76ers at times struggled during this recent stretch. Yes, they've won two straight games so far. But they lost a lot of games because they missed Tyrese Maxey and what he brings to the table. So when you have all of those things taken into place, especially considering how last year they were a top team in the Eastern Conference that was supposed to take things to the next level, I don't. I, I see a lot of the average play from last year that carried over into this year. And there's not much improvement, but it's not too bad of a relapse either where there's a lot of regression. So I'll give them a B minus. We agree on the six. I, I, I'm rolling with you. I, I got them with a B minus as well. This is a team that when they at home, they were one of the best teams in the league. They hard to beat. I believe they came into this record with a nine and five record at home compared to five and seven on the road. And that's when they really had their magic. You can even tell Joel and B feeds off that crowd. Cause that's really where he, where he has his best games. But I, I'm going to give them a B minus because when you consider all the things that they've gone through, they've still found a way to win more often than they have not. And I got to give credit to guys who have stepped up in the absence of the injured stars, such as DeAnthony Melton, whom the Sixers have outscored opponents with by 16.4 points per 100 possessions when he's in the starting lineup besides the leading five on the floor. In spite of his early struggles to start the year, Melton, as well as Tobias Harris, currently stand as two of only six players in the league who shot better than 50% on at least 25 three-point attempts thus far in the month of December. This team has been among the best in the league defensively. Offensively, I still have a lot of questions. I do believe, as you alluded to, Josh, that James Harden, is going to have to learn how to be the third wheel in the Florida offense. He's going to have to learn how to pick and choose his spots on when and where to attack and be aggressive and when to go about distributing the rock out to the playmakers. Tobias Harris has stepped up mightily. He scored in double figures over the last several straight outings. I, 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 like, I, like, I like what I'm seeing from this team, but I still got questions. P.J. Tucker, he Boy. just ain't been cutting. He just Boy. ain't been cutting, man. He just ain't been cutting. Straight up. And that bench, you know, while you've had guys like DeAnthony Milton and Shake Milton step up as of late, without those two, man, it, it ain't really that deep. So I, I, I'm going to give them a B minus for now, but I still got questions as to whether this team can make that next step up. They're a middle of the pack team right now in the East. Still got questions is the way they can step up into that upper echelon realm that so many of us expected them to be after the offseason's addition that they made this past summer. Oh, yeah, most definitely. P.J. Tucker been so cold, he's making my cold tea look good. <laughs> like, jeez, man. Like, he, I don't, <laughs> you can't even – like, I understand, you You know, you're a three-points corner specialist, 
You're playing good defense. Like, you know, that's what you do. I get it. You know, we're not asking you to do a lot. However, you got to at least hit one basket. You got to score at least one point. You can't go into a game, don't make anything. Like, that, that's a problem. You, you, that's a problem for the for the type of caliber player we know that you are. Something has, that, that has a change that I have to give. If that's the case, I'll take his money. I'll take this contract. Put me in the game. I ain't got to worry about it. I ain't got to do nothing. I, I, I'm okay with that. But you don't have people on you had people on Twitter lately saying, man, he a, he just do he ain't doing nothing but getting the cardio in. I'm like, man, don't do it like that, bitch. <laughs> I understand. I, 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 I get it. But I'm gonna move on out to the West, talk about the Utah Jazz real quick. They're currently sitting in the tenth and final spot in the play-in tournament in the Western Conference playoff picture with a 15 and 14 record. Entering week nine of the season above the Minnesota Timberwolves by just one game in the standings. Like Conley just recently came back after missing nine games to train muscle near his left knee. Despite getting out to a hot start, though, man, and sitting atop of the West just three weeks ago, they've fallen mightily as of late. And even though one could blame that to them being without four of their top seven guys in last week's close loss to Denver, despite making it close, the Jazz are squandering a lot of close affairs as of late, regardless of who takes the floor in the month of December. They've lost eight out of their last 11 games. Coming into this recording, they've been outscored by 1.7 points per 100 possessions over that time span. What's your grade through the quarter season, Mark, for the Utah Jazz, man? They, they've shocked a lot of people. I don't think we would have had them in the playing round to start the year at this time of the, of the season if you would have asked us that about six months ago. But here we are. I will – I'll give them – I, I, I'm, I'm going to give him a B. And the reason why I'm going to give him a B is because they – it would have been an A considering they shot the world with the hot start that they had. But they've cooled down. And they, they've hit that they've hit that wall. And now that they've hit the wall, they're playing like what we expected them to play at the end of the day. So because I can't see them getting worse – <laughs> or any worse than they are now at this present moment. And uh, and unfortunately, too, what's shocking within all this is, although they're currently 10th in the Western Conference, they're still top 10 in net rating. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, if that, if, if that shows you anything, it shows that there's still a lot of potential for the Jazz to swing things around, even though it's not looking too pretty. So... Considering that things could be much worse and they're actually playing now what we expected them to play during the beginning of the season, I can't necessarily downgrade them so bad that you know, <laughs> you know that is like, oh, they're they're horrible at it. No, they played, they're already still they're still playing better than what we expected. So I'll give them a B considering what we thought what we expected early in the season or preseason, prior to where they are right now. I'll give them a B because they're still relevant and they still got players that are still going balling and playing hard every night under coach Hardy. And, uh, you know, they got and it. And I know they're going to eventually the moves are going to be, be made to where that depending on those moves, they actually might be better. Who knows? So I'm going to give them a B. I'm going to give them a B. You'd have asked me this question three weeks ago. I'd have gave them a plus, but I'm with you now. I, I, I got them at a B as well. I know they're top 10 still in net rating, but that defense is 
came back down to life again. Right. And they went from eighth in defensive efficiency to 24th overall over the last four weeks. And they've had a, a ongoing bevy of defensive issues, man. Walker Kessler, though, has been great. Louis Marketing is looking like a guy who could either be a building block for them or maybe with the way that he's been playing, maybe, maybe they could use him as a trade chip and get some value back in return. You never know. I think they'll keep him. But they got some guys. Colin Sexton has been solid. Yeah. And he, you know, he had a couple of games in the absence of Mike Conley where he played well, but you could tell when Mike Conley went down that this team was missing a floor general to get him in their sets, man. I believe the Jazz finished that nine-game stretch without Mike Conley with a three-and-six record. And as a result, that's what sunk them to where they currently are now with the last spot in the play-in picture. But I, I give them a B as well. I, I can't really be too critical of them when I had so little expectations, if any high expectations, for them to go about making some noise in the Western Conference. But it does speak to the great foundation that that organization has under executive Danny Ainge, as well as first-year head coach Will Hardy. They're going in a real nice, positive direction. And what I like about them is that they play together. Jerry Vanderbilt is also giving them some incredible minutes as well defensively. They're a fun team to watch on league pass, and I think they'll remain competitive. I don't think they'll be as bad as we thought, but I, I, I'll give them a B for when I think about the way they entered the year with low expectations to the level in which they're playing it right now. But last but not least in this segment for part two of our quarter season report card, I want to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers, currently sitting third overall in the East with a 17-11 and 11 record despite playing 500 ball over their last 10 contests, entered the week as the only team to not rank among the top or bottom 10 in the four factors being shooting, free throw rate, turnovers, and rebounds on offense. Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, one of the best backcourt teams in the East. What, 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 would you, what would you give them as a grade at the quarter season mark right now? I'm giving them an A. I'm giving them an A. Um, because we all knew that from a talent perspective, Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell was going to be elite in the backcourt. We knew that. But it was a matter of seeing what that looks like together on the court at the same time. We just didn't know what it would look like. It's looking pretty dang good, bro. It's looking pretty nasty. And I think what makes it that much better is the fact that you're combating that offensive firepower with the defensive uh, presence of the Twin Towers and Jared Allen and Evan Mosley. Those guys, it's like the Cleveland has found the right balance of offense and defensive firepower. And they're hitting on all cylinders, which is crazy because the Cavs are third in net rating. They are top two in defensive net rating. Yeah. Which is their calling card at this present moment, which is what the, you know, that's that shows not just the players, but JB Bickerstaff and that coach staff got them playing right. And as crazy as the dynamic of the 
the Cavs offense and what it really is, not just when it comes to their starters, but coming off the bench with the lead behind Kevin Love leading that movement, they're still sitting 12th in offensive rating. Now, that's just Cleveland right now. If they polish that offense up, that's even more scary for the Eastern Conference. And that's and that's all, and they're doing all this right now by sitting third in the Easter Conference while winning games. I, that's that, Considering that this is where Cleveland is at right now, knowing this is the first year of them putting all this together, that's scary hours in Cleveland. It's scary hours in, in, in Akron. LeBron might be coming home real soon. <laughs> LeBron might be coming home real soon to play, with the, to play along with his boys. So that's, something, that's definitely something to, you know, to watch in Cleveland, man. They got something brewing. For the first time in any in, within for the first post LeBron James era period, they're yeah. driving like this. So yeah. that's just off that alone, that should be an A plus. But I'm giving them an A uh because you know that that's just because Cleveland is doing something that even though we expect it to be great, I didn't expect it to be great this early. And yet they showing us every they show us every night why they are one of the teams to be in the Eastern Conference. I know LeBron looking outside the window, checking for him. Heck yeah. Just like, like, man, like we, like I, I I really help these guys build a stable organization for once and for all, even without me. Like my, my imprint is still on this organization. I'm going to give the Cavaliers an A minus. And the only reason why is because of what you brought up with the offense. Defensively, they've been solid. And they have they have played above expectations for me. I thought that the best coming into the year, they were a fourth or fifth seed. For mm-hmm. them to be in the top three and a little bit rather comfortably, in spite of having some troubles over their last 10 games playing 500 ball, I, I give them an A minus. My only thing is with Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland have both been leading the way for Cleveland. They're averaging 29 and 21.4 points per game out of the backcourt, respectively. Garland is also tipped in with his playmaking ability, per usual, dishing out nearly eight assists a night to help fuel the Cavs' attack. But Cleveland has managed to be much more efficient in 701 total minutes with only one half of their all-star duo on the floor, as opposed to the 447 minutes with the pairing on the floor together. The Cavs have scored 114.4 points per 100 possessions with either Mitchell or Garland directing the show alone, as opposed to 107.5 points per 100 possessions, while both of them are on the floor besides one another. I wonder how they make that work. I don't mind staggering them, because you're going to have to do that anyway. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the beauty of having two superb and dynamic playmakers and all-star guards of this caliber. But I want to see guys such as Evan Mobley come into his own a little bit more. I also want to see some shooters around him. They got to get some shooting around them guys to help open up some things. We know that the bigs are going to do their job defensively. That's why they're in the top three in defensive rating right now. 
And I believe they have finished this season as a top three defensive team. They were among the top 10 all season long last year for the most part. But with all of that said, I just need to see the shooters step up. If they can find a way to win games offensively and spell those lows that they've been having as of recent in clutch minutes that have cost them games, I think they'll be fine. But based on where they are right now, A minus. They're doing a real good job. JB Bickerstaff is looking like one of the best coaches in the league right now, man. I thought he honestly should have had the Coach of the Year award last season. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's gonna help with the um with the offensive struggles is pretty much they're gonna have to do the same thing. Well, let's put it this way: Donovan's gonna have to do what CJ McCollum is doing in New Orleans. He might have to be that second guy, and that there is Garland run the show. Because when Darius Garland runs the show, oh, it's Motor City. It's, there's no, yeah. there's no, there's no lack. There's no layoff. Donovan Mitchell coming in to join that plane ride and giving it some and giving it a different coastal vibe along the way. That's what's gonna help the Cavs take itself to the next level because Donovan already knows what it's like to be the guy and where and how far he can take a team. He had all that in Utah. They didn't go too. They didn't go very far at the time. Now that he has a young squad that he can roll with that actually fits his fits his skill set, he was an easy plug in, just like CJ was in New Orleans. But CJ didn't come to New Orleans as the main guy. He knew this was the, he knew this team needed Brandon Ingram. He knew this team needed Zion Williamson to lead the show. And when the, with them leading the movement, he's picked he's picked up. He's picked up his game in certain moments that helped got the Pelicans over the hump, especially last season when Zion Williamson was out. Donovan Mitchell might have to do the same thing with this Cavs roster and let Darius Garland lead the way. And, and when moments come, Donovan Mitchell will come out and be Donovan Mitchell. But, but they need to let Darius Garland, as well as Evan Mosley, really take that front, really take that lead on the offensive end and he might have to be that step-back guy it, until it's time for Donovan Mitchell to be that guy in the, in the clutch in a moment and to know when, okay, it's time for me to take over games. That's where I think Donovan Mitchell is going to have to play as great as he is to help this team continue to improve and over time. Because right now they're solely winning games just off of Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell dropping 40 pieces. Like that's, that's a lot of their games. <laughs> you know, that's a, lot, that's a lot of the way they're winning games. That's not going to last all season long. Yeah. So I think I think Donovan Mitchell's gonna have to let Darius Garland lead as well as Evan Mosley take over those offensive duties. And then when it's time, you know, he'll score throughout the game, but when it's time, it's my show. I'm taking over this game because we know what he can do. He's proven that. I think that's the way that that's what that's what the Cavs gonna have to navigate and really work out in order for them to take the, in order for them to not only improve, but also take that next level come playoff time. And that's well said. I mean, Cleveland has beaten Boston twice. So I don't doubt their ability when they're clicking offensively and even defensively to compete with the top teams in the league. Mm-hmm. But I do believe down the stretch in games, they're going to have to find a way to eliminate these scoring droughts. That could be the difference between whether or not they're sitting at home or going on a long, deep playoff run within the next couple of months from now. But I want to ask you, as we get into the closing segment minutes of this show, 
episode nine. What games should the fans have their eyes on and watching this week nine? Man, this, this I love I love I just love basketball so much. There's really so much, so many games you can truly watch, man. But I think for me, one of the games I'm going to want to watch and see. It's Thursday night. Phoenix takes on the Clippers. Okay. I gotta, I gotta see, especially since John Wall's come back and had that monster game and his return to Washington, DC against yeah. his old team, the Wizards. Wall, John Wall's back. He's showing that he's back. If the clip if the Clippers can stay healthy with their two stars, I want to see how that dynamic rolls now that John Wall is getting himself going. That's going to be huge for the uh, Clippers moving forward as they try to bring back Kawhi and Paul George on a healthy, on a health, on, you know, on a healthy basis. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the main games I'm going to want to check out and I will be paying attention to. But the other game too that I would like to see Friday night is the Indiana Pacers and the Cavs. I think that's going to be a very interesting game when you talk about the way the, the rookie has been playing over in Indiana and and, and had his balling as a lead. I want to see how he, he rolls up against the big dogs in Cleveland and the, within that division. I want to see how I want to see how he comes up with that. They got a pair of rookies. Not just yeah. Andrew Nimmar, but Benedict Matherin. Yeah. Who could easily be in the running, not only just for the rookie of the year award, but the six man of the year award with the scoring ability that he's provided this Pacers team for second year head coach in his second stint with the franchise and Rick Carlisle. I really like what Indiana build over there. They got a chance to do some special things in the next few years. I got games for the fans to watch every single night. Wednesday night, Cavs and Mavs in the Metroplex down in Dallas, Luka Doncic, Donovan Mitchell need I say more. This is this is a team in Cleveland who's been 12 and 2 through their first 14 games when playing at home, but they boast a 5 and 9 record on the road. I want to see Cleveland go into this environment and and find a way to win. That's a challenging place to play. Luka Doncic, even though he's been battling through a quad injury, I expect him to play barring any unforeseen news. If that happens, I think it's going to be a hell of a battle, especially with a Mavericks team that is currently within the play-in picture, still fighting to gain, you know, some upward ground in a tough and jumbled-up Western Conference. And then on Thursday, Bucks and Grizzlies, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Will John Moran be healthy? I don't know, but we just talked about this Grizzlies team and the pieces that they have. Tyus Jones been balling. Jaron Jackson Jr. been balling. That should be a good game, nonetheless, no matter who's out there on the floor. You talk about one of the top teams in the West going up against one of the top teams in the East on NBA TV at 7 p.m. Central Time Thursday. Check that game out. Friday night, Magic and Celtics. Orlando coming into this week on a three-game winning streak for the first time this season after knocking off the Raptors twice last weekend at home. Paulo Boncaro. We know what he could do when he got it going. Bo Bo having a career year. Franz Wagner. This is looking like the team of the future in the East. We just talked about Indiana. Orlando, man, they got 6'10 guys, several of them, that can do it all. 
And yeah. mind you, Jonathan Isaac hasn't played in two years. Could you imagine what he'd be able to bring to the team when healthy? That's the team you need to check out. Going up against the best team in the East with the best record in all of basketball still in the Boston Celtics, who even in spite of this recording, riding a two-game losing streak, has been the hottest in all of the league thus far. And Saturday night, final matchup of the regular season between these two squads, unfortunately. And I hate it had to come before the new year, man. Because every time these two teams meet, you 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 know what to expect. And that's the Pelicans at the Suns. Yeah. 8 p.m. Central Time, NBA TV. You called it last week as the game to watch in New Orleans. I'm going to call it the game to watch down in the, in the desert. That 360 windmill dunk that Zion threw down in New Orleans last weekend, they let it be known that they really don't care much for one another. This could be a potential rivalry in the West that is only just heating up. You got to keep your eyes glued onto that, man, because that's going to be must-see TV indeed. And what could be an eventual playoff preview nonetheless? Imagine if we get another preview of that Pelicans Phoenix Sun series with a healthy Zion. Ooh, that's gonna be nasty. That's gonna be nasty. I can't. I I would love to see that again. Yeah, I, I hate it's the last regular season matchup. I, there's no way that that should be the last regular season matchup, especially between two teams that reside in the same conference out west. But with the way they got the schedules now, it is what it is. But I want to thank everybody for tuning in to yet another edition of the Open Run Podcast presented to you by War Media. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel where you can watch all of our shows from Bears pre and post game coverage to my man, producer of the Open Run Podcast, Saul Rodriguez and Miles Porter on the At Bat Podcast. We've been talking about a lot of the Hostile drama across the MLB landscape. And it's only just heating up even more and more as the winter goes along. And all our other great, fantastic programming that we have. For myself, Gabriel Wilkins. My man is Josh Hicks. So long, everybody. <laughs>